your Bibles to Matthew 12. As we continue to preach our way through the Gospel of Matthew, it's where we are today, in Matthew 12, verse 38 through 45. And as we prepare to look at this really serious text, uh, I want us to think about a couple of serious questions to kind of provoke provoke the meaning of this passage better to you before we even read it. I want you to think about what does God owe you? How much revelation does he owe you? How, how much explanation does God owe you? How much is he obligated to, to give you? How much revelation? How many times does he have to tell us the same thing before we respond to him? How many times, how many opportunities should we have to hear the gospel? How many? Jesus asked kind of a similar question later in Matthew 17 when he addresses this faithless, twisted generation. He says, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? So, How do you answer that question? How long should he bear with us? How long should he bear with a faithless, rejecting, indifferent generation? How many chances should we get? How many chances have you had? God does not owe us one single photon of light. And yet, He has given us a cubine of revelation about Himself. He doesn't owe us a single drop, but He has given us an ocean of gospel revelation. And today's text shows us that we need to respond rightly and quickly to the Word of God. And so if I, if I had to sum up in one statement what this passage is teaching us, it's this, that rejecting God's Word even through indifference, leads to increasing inexcusable and inescapable ruin. But the miraculous gift of saving faith 
is glorious and most undeserved. And so let's pray that that miracle of saving and sanctifying grace would come through the preaching of his word. Father, I do ask that you would show us Christ. Lord Jesus, you are the great prophet, priest, and king of God's people. And you pour out light from heaven. You pour out the spirit of grace on your church. And I plead with you, Lord, that you would do it today, Lord, that you would use your own words these words of grace, these hard words of grace, Lord, that you would use them to build your church. It's in your precious name, Lord, that we pray. Amen. And so here we are in Matthew 12, still towards the end. And since the Sermon on the Mount ended, Matthew has sort of consistently shown us three things. He's shown us the power and the authority of Jesus through these miracles and, and signs. And then he's shown us how Jesus fulfills the Old Testament. And then at the same time, he's showing us this increasing opposition from the religious leaders of Israel. And here's what's interesting about that, is how those three things actually intersect. It, when Jesus seems to provide the greatest proof of who he is, like as he, as he provides in undeniable displays his true identity as the Messiah, as the Son of God, guess what? This is exactly when the opposition increases. Think about how contradictory that is. That the teachers of Israel, the ones who supposedly know the most about Scripture, the ones who should be waiting the most on the Messiah, they are the very ones who oppose Jesus the most. The greater the sign, the greater the conflict. And, and as this evidence mounts, we see, as this evidence mounts, so does the hostility. In, in chapter 9, Jesus heals the paralytic and he sees that they have evil in their hearts. And then later in chapter 9, he cast out a demon and they say he cast out demons by the prince of demons. And here in chapter 12 now, two miracles, he, 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 Heals a withered hand on the Sabbath and they conspire to destroy him. And now he has just healed a blind, mute, demon-oppressed man and they say, you're working for the devil. And so it's in the midst, it's in the midst of this conflict and this sharp rebuke by Jesus Christ that they actually asked Jesus for another miracle. And so let's read this text. 
verses 38 through 45. It says, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered Jesus, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. Jesus answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they, they repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits, more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. Teacher, we wish to see a sign. The religious leaders of Israel respectfully, quote unquote, ask for another sign. Wait a minute. What are you going to do with the last one? I mean, this last miracle that they're right now actively discussing has got half the messianic signs all rolled up into one. This guy was blind, but now he sees. He was mute, but now he speaks. He had a demon, but now he's in his right mind. But you say, teacher, we wish to see a sign. They're testing Jesus. The similar passages in Mark and later on in Matthew 16 really shows their heart. They were seeking a sign to test him. They're not motivated by curiosity or some sort of weak faith. Because you have to ask, like, how is this different from John the Baptist? Are you the one? Or how is this different from the deficient faith or the little faith of disciples saying, save us, Lord? John the Baptist and the disciples, they cried out to Jesus for help. These guys are putting Jesus to the test. They want to see a miracle on demand. Show us. Again, show us again. Do it again. They want, to, they want to disprove his claims. They want to call him a sorcerer. 
They are not looking for help in their unbelief. And Jesus knows their heart. Look what he said. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. They're looking for a sign because of unbelief. This is why it's adulterous. He calls it adulterous. This is classic Old Testament language about Israel's persistent unfaithfulness to God. The spiritual adultery, rebellion, apostasy, unbelief. But now, man, they've seen more than enough. To, they've seen more than enough. But yet they did not believe. Instead, how are they responding? They're arguing with him. They're slandering him. They're plotting against him to kill him. You know what? They are just like their fathers in the wilderness. And this is, this is one of the things that Jesus is alluding to. Moses pronounced a similar condemnation on that first generation that came out of Egypt. He says, not one of these men from this evil generation shall see the good land I swore to give to your fathers. And so I want you to think about, I want you to think about the connection between this last evil generation and that first evil generation. What did they see? What did that first generation see that came out of Egypt? Ten plagues. God Almighty demonstrating His power and sovereignty over every element of creation and over every false god of Egypt. Everything under the sun. They saw God lead them out with a huge pillar of cloud and fire. They saw God split the Red Sea wide open and they walked across on dry ground and then they saw God close it up and kill all of their enemies right before their eyes. They saw bitter water turn sweet. They saw bread rain down from heaven, quail flying in, covering the whole ground when they asked for meat. They had a rock following, following them around that issued water for millions from a rock. And then at Mount Sinai, they saw and smelled and felt fire and smoke and lightning and thunder and the very voice of God. How'd they respond? They grumbled and complained over and over and they said, where is God? Is God even among us? They made a golden calf and worshipped it and said, here's your gods. They tested God again and again and again. Ten times, God said. Miracle after miracle, sign after sign, never satisfied, never believing, always resisting a stiff-necked people from the beginning. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. 
So it's adulterous because of unbelief and it's evil because of its motive. Think about what their motive is here. It's not help. They want to see a sign because they don't want, they don't believe. They want to see a sign because they want to test him. They want to discredit him. They want to trap him because they want him gone. They want him gone. They want to destroy him. And so not only are they like their fathers in the wilderness, they're like their father, the devil. What they are doing is evil. What they are doing is demonic. And I want you to think about the similarities between what they're doing now and what Satan has just done back in chapter 4. Here Jesus is baptized and this majestic voice thunders from heaven. This is my beloved son. And what happens? The devil says, are you really the son of God? If you are the son of God, Show me a magic trick. Turn these stones into loaves of bread. What's he asking for? He's asking for a sign. He's asking for a miracle on demand. He's saying, prove yourself. Of course, Jesus refuses. And what does he say? You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So Jesus refuses himself to do what the devil is doing, putting God to the test. And the religious leaders are doing the very same thing. They hear the crowd say, can this be the son of David? And they all but say, if you're the son of David, show us a sign. Give us another sign. They're just like their father, the devil. Jesus himself ultimately says the same thing in John 8. He says, you seek to kill me? If God, would, if God were your father, you would love me. But you are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. And he was a murderer from the beginning. And guess what? They are proving to be a brood of vipers. What Jesus had just called them. They are proven to be fruit from a very bad tree. The seed of the serpent. The sons of Satan. An evil and adulterous generation. And now Jesus is about to condemn them again. But he's going to do it in a real interesting way. He's going to do it using typology. And so I want you to notice that he's doing two things in this paragraph that we're looking at. He's first, he's Jesus is revealing himself through typology. And at the same time, he is condemning them for rejecting this greater revelation. And so in this text, we've got two of the clearest examples of typology from Jesus himself. Jesus himself is saying, I'm the greater Jonah, I'm the greater Solomon. What is typology? This is a theological term that addresses the connections and patterns that we see in the Bible. Sometimes you hear, Dustin even used this phrase this morning, sometimes you hear us say things like, you know, the Passover lamb is a picture 
of Christ. A picture of Christ. Sometimes we point to something back in the Old Testament when we describe it as a picture of Christ or a shadow of Christ. And so when we say things like that, we are doing typology. We are referring to typology. Now I want you to think about this. Typology has two parts. It has the type and the anti-type. The type is uh, something in history that points to something later, which is referred to as the anti-type, the fulfillment. For example, the Passover lamb in Exodus is a type of Jesus, who is the anti-type or the fulfillment of that thing. And so in this passage, Jesus is referring to Jonah as the type in himself, as the greater Jonah. He's referring to Solomon as the type and himself as the anti-type. So see how those two things work together. If you look at all the different theologians that talk about this concept, you can, you can sort of pull out five common components of typology. And I just want you to just briefly hear these. First, typology is going to be historical. Scripture reveals something observable, this connection between real people or real things or real places in history and connects them to something else in history. And we see that happening right now. Jesus is connecting himself or comparing himself to two men from history, Jonah and Solomon. Secondly, typology also observes similarities between those two things. There's some sort of observable connection or correspondence or analogy, however you want to describe it, between the type and the anti-type. So, Jesus is comparing himself to Jonah. He's comparing himself to Solomon. And notice it's not always a direct one-for-one similarity. Sometimes there's actually contradictions like this. Jonah was a prophet, but he's a bad prophet. Especially compared to Jesus, who is the ultimate and perfect prophet. But here in Matthew 12, Jesus is going to give for us the correspondence that we need. He's, he's making the connection between three days in the belly of a well and his three days in the grave. So there's this observable correspondence. The third thing is that typology is divinely intended. In other words, we don't just make this stuff up. We look for what God actually did on purpose in history. Man, this is one of the most amazing things about the Bible is that God orchestrates history to point to His Son, Jesus Christ. For example, there, there are things about David and there's a, there are events in David's life that are clear pictures of Jesus Christ. But David was a real man and these things really happened to him and God caused these things to really happen in David's life for real purposes at that time and to paint a picture of Jesus Christ. 
Only, only God can do that. And so here in Matthew 12, Jesus is pointing to the person and life of Jonah as an orchestration by God to accomplish his purposes then and to portray and foreshadow Jesus Christ himself today. Fourth thing to note is how typology involves an escalation. An escalation. So it's not just similarities we observe, but there are divinely intended escalations in those similarities. So Jesus is not just similar to Jonah. He's the greater Jonah. He's not just similar to Solomon. He's greater than Solomon. Like an argument from lesser to greater, typology presents this historical correspondence from lesser to greater. And last, typology is is, is retrospective. It doesn't work both ways. It doesn't work forward and backwards. It's retrospective. You can't identify the type until the antitype comes. In other words, you wouldn't have easily known that Jonah is a type of Christ until Christ. But now, especially when Jesus points it out, we see this connection between Jesus' resurrection on the third day and Jonah's three days in a fish. So, Jesus is doing typology. He's revealing his identity through typology and simultaneously he is condemning them for rejecting greater revelation. So, Jesus has done more than enough. He's done way more than enough to clearly reveal himself as the Messiah. But they have rejected it all. They've rejected his words. They've rejected his claims. They've rejected his miracles. And yet he's going to still do even more. And they're going to reject him even more. And he's about to condemn them for rejecting all that revelation that God has graciously, graciously given to them in person. And so he's going to condemn them with a lesser to greater argument using examples from history and using typology. Two examples he's given to see here. The Ninevites, these Gentile wicked Ninevites repented at the preaching of Jonah, but this generation will not repent at the preaching of Jesus Christ. The queen of Sheba traveled Miles to hear the wisdom of Solomon, but they won't even listen to Jesus. And so here's what he's doing. First with Jonah. He's basically saying that I am the greater Jonah. Look at verse 41. He says, behold, something greater than Jonah is here. He's doing all the work for you. Note the history. Is the story of Jonah real? Is the story of Jonah fact or fiction? Jesus treats it as straight up history. Jesus believes the story of 
Jonah. Notice he's not nuancing this, not at all. He's not saying, yeah, Jonah's real, but that whale thing, that fish thing, was that's an allegory. As a matter of fact, the very thing that people will try to call a myth is the very thing that Jesus is pointing to as the divinely intended correspondence between himself and Jonah. You see how important that is? Look at, look at how he says this in verse 40. He says, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And so not only is the story of Jonah not a myth, it was sovereignly orchestrated to save the wicked Ninevites while simultaneously painting a future picture of the person and work of Jesus Christ. This is amazing stuff. And so what, what are the similarities? What are the correspondences between Jesus and Jonah? How are they similar? Here's a few little things. First of all, Jonah was disobedient but yet Jesus was obedient how much more obedient was he obedient even to the point of death on the cross how does the story go God sends Jonah to this sinful city of Nineveh but Jonah, Jonah what he disobeys he goes the other way what about Jesus the father sends the son into the world to be the savior of the world. And not only does God send him, but he comes. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Jonah was disobedient to God, but Jesus obeyed in every way, tempted in every way, yet without sin, obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jonah and Jesus are both prophets. But Jesus is the greater prophet. Jonah was a prophet, but not a very good one. He refused his mission the first time, ran the other way, and when he did finally make it to Nineveh with a little help from God, he was a reluctant preacher at best. The Bible indicates that Nineveh was about three days in circumference and it seems like Jonah only preached one day and he only spoke five Hebrew words. Think about that. Jonah was a prophet, but Jesus is a greater, is the greater prophet. What an understatement that is. First of all, he is the great prophet promised in Scripture. Second of all, he is the greatest preacher who ever preached. More than all that, he is not only the great messenger, but he is the great message. He is the word made flesh. Jesus is the sum and substance of biblical revelation. He is the revelation and the explanation of God to the world. He is the invisible, excuse me, he is the image of the invisible God. He's the radiance of God's glory. He is the exact imprint of God's nature. Talk about a prophet. 
God spoke to Nineveh by a reluctant prophet, but in these last days, God has spoken to us by His Son. In some way, Jonah was a Savior, but Jesus is the greater Savior. Jonah was sent to save a city full of sinners. Jesus was sent to be the Savior of the world. On the way to Nineveh, Jonah, he was thrown thrown overboard into the storm as a sacrifice to save a boat full of pagan mariners. But Jesus is the propitiation for the sins of the whole world. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the whole world. And lastly, and most, most importantly, because this is the thing that Jesus is uh, pointing to, Jonah was resuscitated, but Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. Greater resurrection. That's the correspondence between Jonah's three days in the belly of a fish versus Jesus' three days in the heart of the earth. You know that story of Jonah, right? He's thrown overboard to calm the storm, and God appoints a great fish to swallow him up. Jonah is as good as dead. Think about that. How much more hopeless a situation can you be in than to be inside a fish at the bottom of the ocean? And from inside the fish, Jonah says, the waters closed over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the root of the mountain. That's deep. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet, says you brought up my life from the pit oh lord my god he says i'm driven away from your sight yet i shall look again upon your holy temple what a sweet picture of the resurrection of jesus christ from the cross jesus cries out my god my god why have you forsaken me and it is finished Then they bury him in the heart of the earth behind a great stone in a borrowed tomb. And yet, on the third day, he's raised from the dead. Because Jonah lived, the Ninevites lived. Because Jesus lives, we live. This is the preeminent sign. You get that? This is the preeminent sign. This is Jesus' answer to their question. Show us a sign. He says, no sign will be given to this evil, adulterous generation except the sign of Jonah. And if you don't believe this sign, you have no hope. As Paul says, if Christ has not been raised, Your faith is futile and you are still in your sin. 
how stunning it must have been for them to hear that the Son of Man, the Son of Man is going to be buried in the heart of the earth for three days? What? You, you mean that messianic figure in Daniel 7, the one that's coming out of the clouds, appearing before the Ancient of Days? The one who's given everlasting dominion, the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth, the one whose kingdom will never be destroyed? Yeah. That's exactly how, and that's exactly when he receives the glory. After three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus didn't give him a sign that day, but one was coming. The sign of all signs. Did they believe in that one? Nope. Nope. Listen. The power of unbelief is insurmountable apart from the grace of God. You remember the rich man in hell? When he begged Abraham to send somebody, send somebody back from the dead to tell my family so they won't come here, please. And Abraham says, if they don't hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced. Even if somebody rises from the dead. You don't even believe that the one man in history who actually rose from the dead. I mean, I mean, come on, even the wicked Ninevites listened to Jonah. This is the condemnation. This is the condemnation that Jesus is putting on them. He's given us this imagery of a courtroom. A courtroom on judgment day. And on judgment day, he says, these men from Nineveh are going to rise up and condemn this generation. He says, verse 41, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment and condemn this generation. Think about that. On that day, that great and terrifying day, standing before God, and here comes the men of Nineveh as another witness for the prosecution. Is there enough evidence to convict these men? Was God fair with them? Did God give them enough information? And the men of Nineveh stand up and say, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? Have you not read what happened to us? We were a wicked city. 120,000 of us. And one day, this pitiful, pitiless prophet walked into town with seaweed on his head. And he preached a five-word sermon. He didn't do any miracles. He just preached one day. And all he said was 40 days and Nineveh would be overthrown. It wasn't much. But this man spoke with the authority of God. And his message spread like wildfire. Everybody in town believed God. All 120,000 of us. And everybody stripped down to sackcloth and began to fast. Even the king heard. And he believed. He should just decree that every man and every beast even 
Don't eat or drink. Maybe, perhaps, God might relent and be merciful to us, a sinner. And he did. And the men of Nineveh say, one word from God was enough. But this generation, they are rejecting the Son of God himself. They are refusing, arguing with, rejecting, slandering, plotting against the Word made flesh. You see that? They're hearing and hating the greatest preaching that ever preached. They've seen sign after sign and miracle after miracle. And here they are standing face to face with the Son of God and they're gritting their teeth. Murder in their heart. And the men of them will stand up and say, Amen to Jesus' pronunciation. This is an evil, an adulterous, Generation. They had every advantage. Guilty. It will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for this evil and adulterous generation. And then he turns to Solomon. And he does the same thing. He establishes himself as the greater Solomon. Look at verse 42. Behold, something greater than Solomon is here. And so again, Jesus is confirming the historicity of this story about the queen of the south, the queen of Sheba, coming up to Jerusalem to hear and see Solomon. And so what are the similarities between Jesus and Solomon? I'll just, there's so many, way more than Jonah, but I'll just hit just a few. Solomon was the son of David. Jesus is the son of God. He's the son of David and the son of God. He's the God-man. Solomon's just a man. Solomon was the king of Israel. Jesus is the king of kings. He is the sovereign over all. Revelation describes him as the ruler of the kings on earth. He is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. Solomon was just a man. Jesus is more than a king. He has all authority in every age and every dimension. Every corner of the universe. Solomon was rich. Jesus owns it all. The Bible talks about Solomon being the richest king on earth. Jesus owns it all. He owns Pluto. That's good. He does. All things were created through Him and for Him. Not anything that was made was made without Him, nor was it made apart from Him. He owns it. He redeemed it. But this is specifically what Jesus is pointing at in this text to condemn them, and it's the wisdom of God. And the wisdom of Solomon. Solomon was the wisest man ever. But Jesus is the wisdom of God incarnate. Think about Solomon for a second. The Bible says that he exceeded all the kings of the earth in both wealth and wisdom. 
And here we are, thousands of years later, and everybody seems to agree with that. To this day, the whole world knows about this incredible wisdom of Solomon, but where, where did that wisdom come from? It says, God gave Solomon wisdom. Solomon had no wisdom that wasn't from God. Who is Jesus? God. He is the Word made flesh. He is the wisdom of God walking. We know this. Paul says to, to us who are called, Christ is the power and the wisdom of God. Think about that. Anything and everything that Jesus says or does is the pure and unadulterated wisdom of God. And we're about to see some of that on display as we get into chapter 13. Jesus is going to start talking like Solomon in parables. And people are going to be astonished. And they're going to ask, in verse th chapter 13, they're going to ask, where did this man get all this wisdom from? He is wisdom. Now, do the scribes and Pharisees think that way? Are they in awe? Are they lining up to sit at Jesus' feet and hear all this wisdom from God? No. And this is the condemnation again that he's showing them from this Gentile queen who traveled 1,500 miles on a camel to hear Solomon. Again, you've got this courtroom imagery. And here's the queen of Sheba. It says, rising up in judgment against this generation to condemn it. She came from the ends of the earth, it says, to hear Solomon. Now, you're, you're probably not as familiar with that story as you are with Jonah. But the first thing you need to realize is there were no planes, trains, or automobiles. There were no cell phones, no emails. Yet, she hears something from a faraway land. And it's so astounding that she has to go check it out. And she does. When she hears, she goes. She hears about it. She can't believe it. It's too good to be true. But she goes. She packs everything up. Riches and camels and all these people. And they go. And she gets there and she asks Solomon every question she ever had on her mind. And it says, Solomon answered all her questions. And there was nothing hidden from the king that he could not explain to her. And it says she was breathless. It literally says there was no more breath in her. Did she tell Solomon the report was true? And I didn't even know the half of it. It's literally what it said. This is how she responds. No more breath in her. And so when she stands up, what is she going to say? She says, I packed up everything and came to Solomon. I had to find out if it was true. And I was stunned. I was stunned. But now look at this evil and adulterous generation. They didn't lift a finger or travel a single mile. Instead, the Son of God came down from heaven to them. And grace pours out from His lips. 
and wisdom and God-like authority reigns in his speech. And here wisdom is walking and talking in their midst. And what did they do? What is their response? Are they breathless? No, they question every word. They challenge every move. They are beyond skeptical. They slander the wisdom from heaven. They attribute it to the devil. And they hate him. They hate wisdom. And she says, I came to sit at the feet of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon's right here, right here, in their midst. Now, I want you to notice what Jesus has done. In this one chapter, he has terminated all kingdom authority in himself. Jesus has summed up, fulfilled, and terminated these three sacred offices of Israel, the kingdom of God in himself. He is the greater prophet. He is the greater priest. He is the great king. This is all in the same chapter. Here he is, the greater Jonah is the great prophet. The word made flesh. He's the messenger and the message of God. He's the greater priest. Man, look at how he started this in in chapter 12, verse 5. He's the greater priest. Verse 6, the greater temple. Great seven, the greater sacrifice. Verse eight, the greater, excuse me, the Lord of the Sabbath. And now he's the greater king, the greater Solomon, the king of kings. And now this is all being revealed to them. And so think about what does all this revelation require? What happens when you reject it? Condemnation. This is what this passage is about, that rejecting greater revelation leads to greater condemnation. And I want you to think about what's going on in these men's hearts. The more they see and the more they hear, the more they harden their hearts. This is what's going on. This is the power of unbelief. These guys now, the leaders of Israel, are now resembling the leader of Egypt. Remember Pharaoh? The more and more he saw, the more his heart was hardened in this judicial judgment of God. These leaders of Israel are also manifesting this enmity that we see promised in Genesis 3. You remember Genesis 3? God promises enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And they are beginning to show that they are the ultimate climax of that. As they are seeking to destroy the seed of the woman. Israel is in a tragic state. You see that? They're worse than ever. And it's important to get that to understand this little parable that Jesus sticks here. This is how he closes out his conversation with these Pharisees in 43 and 45 about the unclean spirit. Jesus is using a parable about an unclean spirit to describe this evil generation. And he's connecting the parable to what they had just witnessed. Him casting out a demon. And he's applying this directly to them. Look at the last verse in verse 45. Look at it. He says, so also will it be with this evil generation. 
So now I want you to think about this parable. Think about this parable and how it applies to Israel in, in his day. In the parable, we see this person. And the first state of the person is not good. But the person is possessed by a single unclean spirit. But the spirit leaves. The unclean spirit leaves and the house is empty. Why is the house empty? Because the spirit still owns the house. At least he thinks so. Look at verse 40. He says, 44, he says, I will return to my house. How can it return to the house? Because nobody else moved in. Nobody else moved in. Nobody's there guarding the house. Nobody's there occupying the house. But you know what? When Jesus finds a strong man, he takes his stuff. When, when Jesus sets you free, you are free indeed. You are his. You are his treasured possession. He guards the house. This is not the case here in this parable. The house is all cleaned up, but it's unoccupied. Think about this. An unclean spirit, he don't want a clean house. So when he comes back and finds the house clean, time to mess this thing up. And so he brings seven more. Worse than himself. And guess what happens? It says the last state is worse. Think about what he just said. The last state. Seven. Seven spirits. Complete. They ain't no moving out this time. The last state of the person is worse than the first. And then Jesus says, so will it be with this evil generation. And so the last, what we're hearing here is the last generation of Israel is the worst of all. So Jesus is contrasting this generation of Israel versus previous generations of Israel. And you think about that. How in the world can this one be worse than the other ones? Rebellion in the wilderness, golden calf, generation after generation of idolatry, king after bad king after bad king. But you know what? None of that compares to rejecting the Son of God. You see that? They refuse to listen to him. They argue with him. They oppose him, they slander him, they hate him, and ultimately they mock, beat, and slaughter him like an animal. Cursing him, nailing him to a tree. Truly an evil and adulterous generation. They crucified the Son of God. But brothers and sisters, praise the living God, what they meant for evil, God meant for good, for our good. And think about how all this plays out. Think about this typology and this narrative, how it all plays out. The greater Jonah ends up sending preachers to the wicked nations and they repent. Christ is three days and three nights in the belly of the earth. And then he rises from the dead and sends out the apostles. And they repent. He's building his church. And guess what? Gentiles, they come. They come from the ends of the earth to the greater Solomon. 
As God gives light in their hearts, opens their hearts to receive the wisdom of the gospel, they come. They come and they bow down to the greater Solomon and call him Lord. Friends, the strong man's house is being plundered. The strong man's house is being plundered as Jesus builds his church. And he said, he promised this already, he said, I will build my church and guess what? The gates of hell will not prevail. I'm binding Satan and I'm taking my stuff. Taking my people. Now, real quick, what can we take away from this text? Six things I want you to consider. Oh, I want you to consider these things. First, consider the power of unbelief. I want you to think about the power of unbelief that we're witnessing in the scriptures. How can they not believe? How can they not believe? The miracles, the wisdom, their eyes and their ears, the compassion of Christ. Jesus himself says, the very works I'm doing bear witness about me that I'm sent from God. Nicodemus himself confesses for the Sanhedrin. We know you are a teacher from God. Nobody can do what you're doing. Lest God be with him. And yet, by the end of Matthew, half of Jerusalem is saying, crucify him. Behold the power of unbelief. You know my favorite chapter. The little G God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. The devil himself, the strong man with great power, he is actively preventing the whole of humanity from seeing and coming to Jesus. And listen, I want everybody in this room that doesn't know Jesus Christ Everybody here right now that is not a faithful follower of Jesus, please listen to me. I, I know this. I read it and I know it. This should make you tremble. You don't know how dark a room you're in. You don't know how blind you are. You really don't. Do you realize that you are being bound by the strong man right now? Do you realize that you are trapped in an inescapable, by this inescapable power of unbelief? Think about what are the chains that bind you? What are the things that keep you from coming to Christ? What is this powerful force that keeps you from seeing the glory of Christ? And I tell you what it is. It's not a chain. It's your heart. You love your sin. You love your sin. You don't want anything to change. You love the things of this world. You have no taste for heaven's choice. You have no love for the Son of God who loved you and gave Himself for you. 
It's the same problem with this evil and adulterous generation. They love their darkness and they would not come to the light. They love their position. They love their status. They love their money. They like things just the way they were. Man, Jesus might change everything. Jesus will change everything. But see, that doesn't sound appealing to you, but I'm here to tell you with the Apostle Paul that you just don't know the surpassing worth of knowing Christ my Lord. You need help from heaven. The devil is a strong man. But the one I'm preaching about is much stronger. This is the one whose uh, who's rule is far above all authority and power and dominion. The one I'm talking about overcomes unbelief and grants saving faith. He is the Son of God. He is the Redeemer. He's the one who shines light. He's the one who lets the captives out of prison. And all you got to do is ask. For everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That's what it says. It doesn't take strength to escape. It takes Christ. Please realize the power of unbelief. And call upon his name. Second thing I want you to take away, I want you to think about, I want you to consider the judgment day in light of our gospel privilege. I mean, this is what this passage is about. It's about judgment. It's about unbelief. He's given us a glimpse of judgment day when the books are open and the witnesses come and they bear witness and testify against the wicked. Think about it. Who's going to rise up and condemn our generation? You talk about an evil and adulterous generation. What about ours? Think about the unprecedented privilege that we have. Think about the magnitude of the gospel privilege that we have that's going to be evidence against us on judgment day. We've got a completed Bible right here. The full gospel. Every bit of it. We have the completed testimony about the person and work of Jesus Christ. We have a full theological explanation about what happened on the cross. And we've got all that in every house, on every corner, and on every channel. We've got a Bible in every house. We've got a church on every corner. We've got a preacher on every channel. We've got gospel music all over the dial, Christian schools in every town, bumper stickers and billboards and a hundred foot cross in front of a catfish house. Yet you will not come. What will the men of Nineveh say? They might say, we heard one preacher warn us with five words and we repented. Your parents have taken you to church every week of your life. You've heard the gospel a thousand times with fullness and clarity. How many times have you been convicted by the Holy Spirit and brush it off, shake it off? Will you harden your heart like these men? Or will you repent like none of them? The Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. What will the Queen of Sheba say? 
She said, I heard rumors, just rumors about a glorious king. And I traveled 1,500 miles to see if it was true. And it took my breath away. Did you hear the truth about the Son of God? Week in and week out, Christ is lifted high and proclaimed every week in this church. And you're bored with it. Can't wait for lunch. Indifference to the King of glory. And the scribes and the Pharisees, what will they say? They, they got a say in this too. Even though most of them probably died and went to hell, but they would probably agree with the words of Abraham to the rich man in hell that said, they didn't hear Moses and the prophets. Neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. They might say, you had the same great sign we had. You heard all your life. About Jesus being raised from the dead on the third day. How many Easter sermons did you hear? You even said you believed in the resurrection, but it didn't change your life. But my friends, it does not have to be that way. Consider the wisdom of the gospel. Ask and answer the greatest question. How can a man be right with God? How can a good and righteous God forgive evil, unrighteous sinners? How can, how can He do that? How can, a, how can He be just and justify the wicked? The wisdom of the Gospel. It's so simple. It's, it's so simple, yet no man could have ever imagined it. And it's so impossible, yet no man could have ever accomplished it. In love, God sent His eternal, only begotten Son into this world of sin. And taking on flesh, the Son of God lived the perfect life. And taking on the cross, He was slammed for our sin. He received the fire from God for our wickedness. And then He took up His life again. After the third day, Raised to prove He was the Son of God and to prove that all judgment was gone for those who would repent and believe and be fully and forever forgiven. This is the wisdom of God embodied in the person and work of the greater Son. And it may be foolishness to the world, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And the wisdom of God. So, do what Jesus is pointing to here. Repent and come. This is what happened. Nineveh repented and she became. Repent and come to Christ. And I'll just say one last thing. To the brothers and sisters that are in this room. Think about God's patience. Think about God's kindness and patience to you. He is truly slow to anger. Consider this gracious gift of saving faith. What, what is the difference between you and the Pharisees? Grace. Nothing but grace. Grace has overcome your unbelief. For by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Grace has overcome belief and He has given us greater revelation. He has allowed us the privilege of seeing the light 
of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Let's praise him for his grace. Let's pray. Lord, help our unbelief. God, show more and more of your Son to us that we might know him and grow in grace. We are blessed from heaven to know you. We praise you for that grace. Lord, you did not have to come to us. You could have left us in darkness, but you called us out to proclaim your excellency. Lord, help us to do that. Draw sinners to yourself. In Jesus' name.